Hey, this is Andy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase it all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome back to another episode of AT Corner. For this education episode, we're going to be bringing back a familiar face. Yes, we are bringing back Dr. Kateras, and he is actually officially the first person who we've had on our podcast more than once. Yes, and he was also the first physician we brought on, I believe. Lots of firsts here for season four. That is not a first. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely, no. Now, if we had the audio button to do it, that would be a first. So who is Dr. Kateras? Dr. Kateras earned a Bachelor's of Science in Kinesiology at UCLA, his medical degree from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine, and his Sports Medicine Fellowship with UC San Diego. He is currently the team physician for the U.S. men's and women's national volleyball teams, Cal State Fullerton Intercollegiate Athletics, Go Titans, where I was also lucky enough to have worked with him as our team physician when I was a grad assistant there as well. He also serves as the team physician for Chapman University Dance Department. Where I had Go Panthers, by the way, (laughs) and where I also had the pleasure of working with him. And also Orange Lutheran Athletics. Also, fun fact, he was the team physician for USA Volleyball and Table Tennis during the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics. So all in all, he is a super awesome physician. He um, is uh, primary care and he does sports medicine, which is just a really cool back and forth. Mm -hmm. So we decided to have him back on to talk about some of these cardiac conditions that we see on a physical, you know, some of these things that it would... um, what are the things that you really need to send to a cardiologist? And we thought he would be the perfect person to talk to since he has that dual background. Yes, and also perfect timing, mm-hmm. considering the time of year we're in. Right. It's that medical history PPE time. Everyone's favorites. <laughs> so without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Kateris. Randy, you want to get us started? Yep, let's do this. So with this time of year, you know, anytime we're talking about preventing cardiac stuff, it always starts at that PPE uh, that pre-participation examination. Uh, what components of the PPE are most important to identify an athlete who might be at risk for a cardiac pathology? I think it's the athlete who's telling you about potential heart issues. They get somewhat dizzy when they exercise. They may feel like they're going to pass out. Chest pain, especially on that left side. Inability to finish workouts. Uh, shortness of breath. Those are things that definitely get my attention. So if you're seeing those on your PPE those definitely require further evaluation. So do you have any recommendations on how to um, get that out of the athlete? Because, you know, they kind of just mark no, 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 all the way down. But, you know, when you're sitting there and talking with them, you know, you can actually kind of get more of that conversation, more of that background. Do you have any recommendations on some of those questions that you can ask to actually uh, get those cardiac questions kind of in the way? Sure. You know, you sometimes appeal to their greater sense of self-preservation. So my athletes do the same thing. They'll have bunch of X's or just a straight line down all the no answers. So I'll go through each one individually again. And then I'll mention, you know, I'm sure you've heard in the media, I'm sure you saw athletes have been dropping and sometimes we get no warning. Now, some athletes may have had warning, they didn't appreciate it. So you get maybe one chance of a warning sign. So if you maybe have had some, I'm not here to tell you can't play. I just want to make sure you continue to play. And every so often they might go, well, there was that time a month ago, or mom might chime in the corner, you know, remember after practice that one day? 
So I think you just have to make it as personal as possible and try to remind them that our main goal is to put them back on the field. Absolutely. Uh, what about like, again, going back to that medical history, what role does that family history play? Are there any kind of questions that you, or answers that you would key on? Like, okay, they have a family history of this. That could be a red flag. I can remember I had a patient a couple of years ago. I was asking about heart. She says, oh yeah, my father and my grandfather have this thing called long QT syndrome. In fact, my grandfather was one of the original patients that was identified. Really? Let's get an EKG. Unfortunately, he had long QT syndrome. That was probably a softball toss. However, if you do have the family history, especially under age 50, close, you know, your parent, your brother, your sister, and they've got an identifiable heart issue, I'll even ask, you know, has a cardiologist ever said that your sibling or you should be tested? And mm-hmm. even with that, I might have a very low threshold. Hey, let's at least get that EKG, that echo. Let's get that cardiology to chime in. And most families like, hey, no problem. We've already been through this. We don't want to dance this dance again. We don't want any uncertainty. So it's usually underage 50, exercise related, and something where it may have influenced that family member's ability to exercise. So speaking of EKGs, would is that something that you would recommend just like spot treatments of, you know, someone who you catch or, or I know that some places do an EKG for all the athletes. Mm-hmm. Do you see an added value of, of doing a mass EKG screening for your PPE process? Gee, there's nothing more controversial than that question. <laughs> I think every time you go to a sports medicine conference and you throw out, hey, mass participation EKG, you just stand back and wait for the responses. I mean, the benefits, you might catch something you can't pick up with your stethoscope in your history. You might identify an athlete and pick up something like long QT or a barrent left bundle branch, something that may save their lives. That's always the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And some would say, hey, catch one athlete, it's well worth the time, the cost, the effort. What's the downside is the time, the cost, the effort. We have limited resources. So There's only so many hours in the day and how many people are needed to read these, interpret them, and follow up with those that are somewhat sketchy. Uh, There have been good studies that have looked at mass participation EKGs. Yes, they've identified findings that will save lives. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there have been cases where somebody got an EKG, looked great, or maybe they had an abnormality. Further testing looked good and they still had a cardiac event. So it really boils down to resources. Are we going to use our resources more for this? Or do we want to say, hey, let's make sure we're doing secondary prevention. Let's make sure we're getting kids vaccines. Let's make sure kids are wearing their seatbelts or doing other things that will help keep them alive. Yeah, I definitely, I remember hearing just that debate, (laughs) just the back and forth. Like, is it, you know, and it goes back to that cost. Like, is it, you know, are we were, should we be throwing the resources this way or should it be somewhere different for sure? It's definitely, it's hard to, you know, put a value and I'm not trying to make a value Mm -hmm. judgment, but just a reality thing. Uh, I think I heard once if we got EKGs on every kid in America, let's say entering high school and asked every pediatric cardiologist to chime in, that's all they would do. And, you know, some pediatric cardiologists would say, I want to make sure I'm seeing my kids with congenital heart issues and the other things that we've already identified. So again, do we have the resources? Yeah, absolutely. So in this now post-COVID world, you know, one of the things we have to think about is how has COVID maybe changed the risk, especially early on in the pandemic, there were some possibilities of cardiac complications. Have we seen anything that a history of COVID adds some kind of increased risk to a cardiac pathology? 
I know early on we were really afraid about myocarditis and we were checking athletes at minimum with EKG, troponin levels, cardiac MRIs, and we found a few cases and it scared us. And the initial data was coming out one out of three athletes and this was horrible. Thankfully, those data were not replicated. The numbers are probably what, one to 2%. So I think at minimum, you've got to sit down with the athlete and go through your same screening you would as a PPE, chest pain, exercise intolerance. Now, exercise intolerance after COVID is not uncommon. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of tease out, are you just slowly coming back and deconditioned or do we have to look at that further? One thing that we are seeing more in our post-COVID population is something called partial orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is where the heart rate is higher than it needs to be. And often these athletes will complain of dizziness, brain fog, headache, and not just exercise intolerance, life intolerance. So they can't even go to class. They get tired getting out of bed. So that's another thing to keep in the back of your mind is you're the athletic trainer watching this athlete come back from COVID. There's a difference between, okay, they're a little bit slow, but they're still going to class. Day by day, they're getting better. And whoa, this kid's a couple weeks out and they're struggling just to maintain daily life activities. That's somebody who definitely needs more evaluation. Oh, for sure. Um, so speaking of those cardiac conditions, what are some cardiac conditions that the AT is most likely to come across? Because I know you you talked about like long QT syndrome and, you know, we talk about hypertrophic myopathy mm -hmm. and heart murmurs, but what are some some conditions that we might come across? Well, you know, often you're only going to find the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and or the arrhythmia on the back end, which nobody ever wants to find. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of athletes just coming in with chest pain, dizziness, and it's tough because it's the first week of conditioning. Are you relatively deconditioned? Are you pushing yourself maybe a bit more than you think you should? Or is this something a little bit different? And again, the athlete's probably going to want to downplay symptomatology. They want to stay on the field. Uh, so I think that's a tough job. It's a tough job in my office. Sometimes I'll look at the athlete and go, I'm not sure where to go with this, but the default is always to be cautious. Mm -hmm. I'd rather get a perfectly clean bill of health and everybody reacts happily versus finding out the hard way. Um, so I think those are the things you're going to find. Uh, the athlete who I think really worries the AT and all of us is the athlete who's having exertional symptoms, the athlete who's in mm -hmm. the midst of their exercise and they're having chest pain, dizziness, near faint. The athlete who, let's say, finishes a 10-mile run, kind of is milling around, I'm getting a little bit dizzy. That could be a different entity. That could be peripheral blood flow in the legs, not enough cardiac output to the heart, less of a concern. But I think the AT who's called to a practice venue because the athlete's having symptoms, that's a big-time worry. Absolutely. And then as Sandra brought up is that heart murmur, right? Like a lot of people kind of like don't know they have one or they had one as a kid. So what level of concern is that heart murmur if it's detected in an athlete? It, you know, depends. It's kind of like real estate location, location, location. If it's on the left side, middle of the sternum and on a scale of one to six, I mean, you're barely able to hear it. You're less worried. If it's, let's say, maybe more towards the axillary area because of left ventricular hypertrophy, or you don't need that stethoscope, that gets your attention. The other is the murmur that when I lie an athlete down, I don't hear it much. But when I stand him up, all of a sudden I hear it. That's pathomimonic. That's like your board question for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So I always oh. teach people, listen to the athlete lying down, then sit him up, then stand him up. 
So if you lie him down, there's nothing. You stand him up and, whoa, I'm hearing that two out of six murmur on the left side. Let's look into that further because that could be a giveaway for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which on the order of things we're looking for, it's one of the more common things. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know that part about that kind of, that change in position possibly being a, a red flag for um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's good to know. Why is that? It's the way blood flow, when you're lying down, there's ample blood flow through the heart because there's really no resistance to the mm. cardiac outflow. When you stand somebody up, there's obviously a little bit of resistance to getting blood flow more peripherally and it reduces uh, cardiac return to the heart. And that can actually amplify the murmur because the hypertrophic ventricle doesn't pump out as much. And so there's a little bit more resistance to it. There's not as much blood flow coming out. Okay. So, and it's also important to listen, you know, to get a nice quiet environment. I mean, you know, most offices, most ATRs, let's be honest, aren't the quietest places <laughs> on the planet. So, you know, maybe getting into that quiet room or asking the athlete to wait till, you know, the soccer team is done getting taped. Okay. Now we can take a listen to you. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's good to know for sure. Yeah. We definitely know it, um, it's kind of hard to get a nice quiet spot yeah. throughout the day. You can find your sweet spot. Yeah, for sure. There's a lull at some point. <laughs> at some point for a few minutes. Yep. <laughs> Not when you're trying to eat your lunch though. No. Goodness. They never, know, by never, the way. Never stop they know when you're eating lunch. That's like a guarantee. It's my break time. I'm hungry. Guaranteed something will happen. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Kind of along the lines of like kind of picking out a murmur. Uh, one thing that's always looked at on the physical is that blood pressure. And anytime you start seeing a high blood pressure, you get a little worried, but what kind of role does that play in maybe highlighting a risk for a cardiac pathology? You know, if it's sustained and true high blood pressure, then you're talking about increased either pressure the heart has to exert to get blood out or more pressure to get it back to the heart. So, you know, you always look at, did you just have a monster drink before we took this blood pressure? Do we scare you in kind of that white coat type thing? Mm -hmm. So if it's borderline, we'll repeat it. We'll maybe have them do it at home where they're hopefully more relaxed. We'll hopefully help them avoid any stimulant type activity. You know, if you're starting to push though, you know, more than the standard deviation, you're starting to like the 180 over 100. That's like, stop. We got to talk because that's a higher blood pressure that could represent either a left ventricular hyper. Your heart's really trying to work hard or being forced to work hard. Or are we talking about potential risk of target organ damage, the brain, the kidney, the liver? So you always want to repeat it, but you always want to keep that standard of if it's already pretty high now and we repeat it still high, then we have to react to it. And it's important to have the right size. You know, a lot of times, you know, with kids, especially who are grown, we want that cuff to be about two thirds of the upper arm. Mm -hmm. And we've got some kids who, let's be honest, they're not kids. They're like adults <laughs> plus. So you bring in that nice little blood pressure cuff, guaranteed they're going to be high. So we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But if you got the right cuff and the right technique and they're still high, got to work off it. Oh, God. No, seriously. There's, we get so many of our football guys who need to, redo their blood pressure like yes. every year we do our physicals and it's just a lot of times it's because we just don't bring out the big blood pressure. Yeah. Cuffs. Speaking of kind of like that, especially like technique, you know, one of the nice things is like, Hey, those automatic ones are quick and easy, you know, but how does that compare to just going with a manual, uh, blood pressure reading? 
you know, I think the manual, you can make sure you put the cuff on the right way. You can make sure you auscultate and hear the start and the end of that cardiac sound. And you can also talk to the athlete. Hey, relax your arm. Let's have you sit for five minutes. Let's have you calm down. So, you know, if you told me, okay, I'm going to be doing my father's got a manual blood pressure cuff at home. I'm going to get some values. Cool. Let's at least start with that. But if we're going to be making decisions, it's probably best to have that handheld blood pressure cuff and the stethoscope ready to go. Is there a difference for you if someone has a high systolic or a high diastolic value? Like if they, if they had like a, mm-hmm. a higher diastolic value, would we, you be more concerned than if they had a higher systolic value? I think we look at both. I think maybe a bit more systolic tends to be the one that runs higher, but we look at both. So if you're looking at, you know, systolic pressures that are above, you know, like the 99th percentile for age, we use age, we use gender, and we use height. Obviously, tall people get a bit benefit of the doubt. Once you hit the adult world, 18 or above, you know, if you're starting to push the 160 over 95 to 100, you're starting to get a little bit more nervous. But I think we tend to see more of the systolic, the blood pressure that's high when the heart's trying to pump blood out as the bigger problem. Got it. So now going on the, the conversation no one wants to have, um, what cardiac conditions would, you, would be identified as probably being disqualifying for athletic participation? It depends. If you look at the literature, when I'm not going to age myself too much, but when I started doing this 25 years ago, the list of conditions that were absolute, thou shall not participate, you're basically going to start doing tiddlywinks, was pretty long. I'll bring mm-hmm. up long QT again. You know, back in the day, that was, don't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, this young man and many like him now can be possibly on beta blockade or they might have an internal defibrillator or an external, they're allowed to participate. You know, if you had fast forwarded 20 years, I would have said no way in heck, but here we are. Yeah. Uh, so there are still conditions. Uh, maybe the long QT that does not shorten with exertion is going to be a bit more worrisome. Or maybe that's the kind of kid, I don't think you should be doing swimming or cross-country running where you're way off campus. If you have an event, Mm -hmm. no one's there to help you. I think we're doing more uh, individualized. What events do you want to do? What activities? You know, risk tolerance up to a certain point, you know, between you and also your institution, because, you know, it's a big event when somebody goes down. Like this one man, uh, we were talking, well, we'll have a defibrillator. Okay, that's great, but you're going to have 30 to 40 people watching this? Yeah. Is the league going to be cool with it? And everybody, we talked through it and never had to use it, thank God. But that was part of the discussion. That was not anything we would even think about years ago. It's like, no, you're done. See ya. A hypertrophic cardiomyopathy uh, depends on the degree. Uh, aortic stenosis, aortic valve issues. We see a lot of those in our taller athletes. Uh, there are certain numbers. Yes, uh, we've had to ask some athletes not to participate because those numbers were too high, too risky of an aortic dissection. So there are certain conditions that definitely get your attention. And yet then again, we've seen Camisha Cordis, those athletes return mm-hmm. to play. We've seen V-Fib. Sometimes those athletes come back to play. So I think we're moving more towards individualized, looking at genetic testing, looking at further evaluation. So the list of absolutes is getting shorter. That's great to hear. Yeah, I was going to say that's awesome, especially like you said, that individualized kind of approach, like really taking in the individual factors as opposed to just a generic, oh yeah, no, you have this, you're out. 
I mean, that's something I was going to bring up right. too, because even like we talk about, you know, if you have a, um, an athlete who participates in, um, aquatics and they have epilepsy, mm-hmm. you know, if they, you know, they can participate, but if it's uncontrolled, obviously that's not something that you want to want to have them in the pool. Right. So, um, it was really, it was really good to hear you talk about like, oh, if we, if we maybe not the pool, but you know, it's not totally across the board yeah. disqualifying for everything. Right. So sometimes you walk in the room with, I'm going to give you a list of what we think you can do. And let's focus mm-hmm. on that first. Hopefully you find something on that list that's appealing to you. Now, if your sport of choice is on the not as good list, we'll talk. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think at least we have those conversations a lot more than we used to. Yeah, I was actually, that's what we we're going to lead into next is like, how do you kind of have that conversation, especially if it's maybe an athlete who didn't know that they may have had a condition and then they just found out like through the PPE process, like how do you have that? Like, Hey, you may not be able to do this sport anymore. I think, you know, you go through what you have objectively. What have we found? Have we come to a pretty good clarity that this is what you've got? Ask the athlete to kind of give you what they understand about it. Then we bring up what we know and don't know. You know, this might be a condition that could have a higher risk, uh, is that a 2%, 5%? Hard to say. Obviously, you bring in people who are important, their parents, grandparents, uh, spouses, whoever's involved in this decision. Uh, you do not hesitate to seek out other care. So if there's somebody even on their side of the country who sees more of this or has seen this at the level of this athlete, you want their opinion. Even if we all come to the same conclusion, at least they know that it's been run up mm-hmm. through people who have done this and then you really empathize. Hey, this is terrible. I mean, this is not what I expected. I'm not real pleased to walk in this room to be the bad guy. At the same time, I want to have this conversation with you 20 years from now. Yeah. And again, there's enough out there that athletes will have seen where you don't think that's going to be you, but you really don't want to be that one. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be the one that's leading off ESPN Sports Center because there was an outcome that was unfavorable. It's just not what the kind of pressure we want to put on you and your family. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Those are some really great tips to having that conversation because mm-hmm. it's something that no one really wants to talk about. No. No. And it's sometimes a conversation that evolves. So you kind of begin to have it, then you pull back a bit, then you give a bit more of it, then you pull back. And mm-hmm. you're always waiting for the athlete. I mean, you know, your assumptions are going to be just upset. You know, I never want to play, you know, I want to play, whatever. There are times like, you know what, this ain't worth it. You know, they may come to a conclusion that makes it never easy, but Mm -hmm. at least a bit more understandable. And then you always want to have backup plans. What can you do? Can you become a team manager? Do we have psychological support? Because even if they say, I'll be fine with it. No, they won't. First game that they miss, the first training camp they miss, there's going to be some issues. So you always want to have the right support. You know, if the athlete wants to stay close to the team, great. If they say, I just want to walk away. I don't want to even be close. It's going to be too tantalizing. Totally understand. Yeah, absolutely. And also too, like initially, especially if it's someone who hasn't like felt symptoms right away or like as they, you know, a young student athlete, it's really hard to make them think long-term. But like you said, that once you start bringing up the self-preservation aspect, you know, they, they do start to realize the severity 
of the situation. But yeah, it can definitely be tough, especially for a, you know, a young adult. It's really hard to get in that frame of mind of how does this affect me 20 years from now? Right. No, it's, they're tough and you work through it and you use your resources so you don't feel like you're the only one and you make sure that they've got their support system in place. I also really like how you bring up to the athlete, uh, you ask them, what do they know about the condition? Mm-hmm. Well, everybody's got access to the internet. And so some <laughs> are going to look it up and they may get like the worst case scenario, or they might say, oh, this site said it's not a big deal. Okay. Let's at least make sure we're all consistent with how we feel about that. They may have come to you and said, I looked up that, you know, Dr. Jones out in Massachusetts, she's like the world's authority. Okay. Let's give her a shout. So we just want to make sure that they feel like they're being listened to and they're helping get as much control in a process that probably feels pretty out of control. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And that's where that mental health component comes in too. No, and I can think of cases where we've had to disqualify, not just for cardiac, but for concussion or musculoskeletal. Mm -hmm. And you always want to be really, and as an AT, you know, you might have, hopefully you still have continued connection with this athlete. Maybe they're still going to be part of the team. They're still going to be at the games. And I'll guarantee you there will have some downtimes. And if you can anticipate it, no, hey, you know, maybe even have the athlete say, I got a signal, you know, when I'm just not really doing well, the AT can either pull them aside or, maybe even allow them to get back in the locker room, allow them to kind of have their moment. Yeah. Perfect. Great. So now kind of like on that flip side of talking about pathologies and we've already hinted the individualized approach, but are there any certain pathologies that would disqualify them for maybe like more high intense, like, uh, sports or, uh, high contact and maybe they could be okay to play in another sport. Is that also a possibility? Great question. Yes, we kind of look at sports, how dynamic they are in terms of, let's say, intensity of running or other level of aerobic exertion. There's the static component, like how much exertion, weight training type stuff. And there's a continuum. And yes, you can classify a sport that might be contact collision with a lot of conditioning element may not be favorable, but a sport that's a little bit less so Mm -hmm. could be more favorable. Um, you know, there's conditions, for example, the commercial cordis playing a contact sport may not be the best option in some cases, but then a non-contact sport might be more favorable. Um, sports that are land-based versus aquatic based, like we already talked about sports that aren't as much extremes and also location, you know, again, I'm across country and I'm going to be way off campus. That's probably not as easy as a track and field athlete. Hey, you're around this 400 meter oval. We can keep an eye on you. So a lot of different things we look at. Can you give a brief overview of some of the most common um, treatments that you've seen for cardiac? So for example, um, like let's say I have an athlete with a heart murmur, like we talked about before. Um, What can I tell that athlete the process would be like, or like high blood pressure, for example, I have, um, you know, if you have chronic high blood pressure, you might just need to get on meds and then we can get you to play. Can you go over kind of the most common right. and like kind of like those simple, um, what we need to do to get you to return to play? Sure. So let's say your blood pressure sustained, it's high. We're going to probably want to look and see if there's what we call heart damage or end organs. So we're probably going to do an echocardiogram, ultrasound of your heart to make sure that left ventricle which pumps blood from the heart, the rest of the body's not enlarged. If it is, that's a bit of a different discussion. 
we're going to maybe look at labs to see that liver, kidney function are okay, that we're not seeing the kidney values off that could represent either the kidneys, the cause of this blood pressure issue and or it's being damaged because of it. We're going to maybe check the eyes to make sure there's not any changes in the retina from high blood pressure. Uh, and then we're going to probably look at other things that come with high blood pressure, maybe check sugar levels for diabetes. We'll probably look at height and weight. We may even look at uh, cholesterol. Once we've done all that, if we have not found end organ damage, then there's less of an immediate concern. We'd still like to get the pressure down. We've got to be cautious though, because some of our blood pressure treatments either affect athletic performance and or are banned. Uh, diuretics, which get rid of extra fluid, really good for blood pressure, but if you're doing drug testing, there's a bit of a problem there. So we can't use those. Beta blockers, really good for reducing blood pressure, but they also reduce the heart rate. You can't get as high a heart rate. So if I'm an athlete, that kind of stinks. So we often have to tailor the treatment to what the athlete's demands are and that we don't mess up with either athletic performance and or drug testing issues. A murmur, first thing we're going to do is probably do that EKG or echo to look and see, is it more of a functional murmur or is there something in the heart or the aorta that's causing it? So it's getting more information before we jump up and down and say, hey, there's a big problem here. It kind of helps giving that the athletes like an idea of like what's going to happen mm -hmm. next. Right. Right. And they all, you know, the challenge too is often these will come up PPE right before start of season. They want to see the cardiologist yesterday. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, they can get in pretty quick. Sometimes they can't. Uh, Sometimes the primary or the sports medicine team can at least get the echo, get the labs, at least give us a starting point. So at least, you know, collaboration with your medical colleagues and, mm -hmm. you know, everything's kind of immediate when the start of the season comes or it's a higher profile athlete. But at least you know, we want to do our diligence. We want to do it the right way if we can help expedite, obviously. But we also don't want to, oh, it's the start of the season. Ah, we'll just get it when we can. Go, go play. And we always want to make sure we do our diligence before we let an athlete go back. Absolutely, for sure. Especially when you're talking about cardiac, 100%. Which has been such a hot topic lately. Yes. So, it's our it's season four. We're still bringing action items. You ready? Yep, go ahead. So, we like to do, just to wrap up the end of the podcast, we just like to get an action item, something that is tangible that athletic trainers can kind of take away from this episode um, to their practice today. So, um, Dr. Kateras, what are some key red flags for a cardiac or for a cardiologist referral in your opinion? Anything that happens with exertion. So if the athlete in the midst of their sport or activities telling you chest pain, dizziness, headache, blurred vision, that's a stop everything. Don't pass go. Do not collect 200 bucks. You probably need to see the cardiologist. I'd say if the blood pressure is quite high, you know, what we call stage two or above the 99th percentile that needs to be seen. And then if there's a murmur, listen to the different positions, listen, lying down, sitting up, standing up. And the murmur that's heard standing up, but not lying down probably gets a direct visit to the cardiologist. Boom. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. That was perfect. That Quick summed it up real well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good to hear. Especially because like, I feel like cardiology or like a, a cardiac event or pathology, like you learn it for the BOC, you take your exam and then it's like, you have to like, cause you don't necessarily, hopefully you don't see it a lot <laughs> and you have to remember, okay, wait, what was that condition? What does that might pop out to? So it's a good reminder for sure. 
Yeah. And again, it's tough because athletes will come in with, yeah, my chest hurts today. And it could be, again, you're deconditioned. You got a bit mm -hmm. of a breathing episode. Could it be as you're running through all these different things? And then before you learn, go and ask them the next question out the door because practice started again. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it can be challenging. You know, the athlete who is truly got an issue, maybe takes a knee easier because, you know, okay, you're done. You're done. You know, we're, we're going to, you, you've stopped yourself, but see, athletes got that more casual interaction. The, oh, by the way, as they're running off to practice, those mm -hmm. are always the ones that get your attention. Oh, for sure. Which is also why it's really good to have our, uh, our docs in our corner. Mm -hmm. Big time. Thank you, Dr. Kateras. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Kateras. This was awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. So one thing that I really enjoyed with our conversation with Dr. Kateras was how much he highlighted that personalized medicine approach towards a cardiac condition, because it, he did bring up a good point about that kind of old school thought of, or at least what was initially viewed as, hey, if you have these conditions, oh, that's a, a complete no-go. Whereas nowadays you can kind of get a little more creative on like, okay, maybe it's not a no-go, but maybe it's a no-go for this sport or maybe this activity. Which, I mean, I can see how if you've grown up playing soccer all your life without it, without getting a real, like, yeah. cardiac look, and then all of a sudden, you know, you go to play intercollegiate athletics or even high school athletics, yeah. and, you know, you have someone telling you, like, no, you can't play that sport. Yeah. you got to play a different sport. Like, that's devastating. Yeah. So it is nice to hear that just the evidence behind it and the way we practice medicine is also going to follow that. How we've talked about anything in medicine is how, you know, that personalized touch is what we should be shooting for and what we should be striving for. Um, also a, a good just rule of thumb is cautious. More cautious is always better. Mm -hmm. Like taking the cautious. You, yeah. You might get some frustrations. You might get someone who's a little upset, but you know what? You covered your bases, right? We're making sure that that person is a okay. Right. Something you don't really want to be wrong about. A hundred percent. And, you know, I feel like this episode was really refreshing considering just everything, everything cardiac that's happened the past, the past year. Mm -hmm. You know, we all know about the DeMar Hamlin uh, case and early part of the year. And then also this summer, there was another high profile athlete that had a cardiac event. Well, there are so many of our athletic trainers who listen who have dealt with cardiac yes. incidents that weren't in the news. A hundred percent. Absolutely. So we hope that you can take some of this information and apply it to some of your upcoming or um, future PPEs. Yeah. If you guys are new, we do every other episode as education or stories. This one was an education episode. Next week, we are going back to our story episodes where we take stories from real life athletic trainers and compile them on a certain topic. You can find those on our Instagram at AT Corner Podcast if you would like to submit your story or you can email us at ATCornered's at gmail.com. There are upcoming story topics in our Facebook group as well, facebook.com slash group slash AT Corner Podcast, um, where there's only one question to get in. Once you answer where you heard about our podcast, you will automatically be added. So without any further ado, I don't think I have anything else. Nope, that was perfect. Thank you for helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape. Bye.